PCS Podcast. I'm your host, Johanna Rubby. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversation about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Tuesday night IBS podcast episode. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic and uh, one that I've been wanting to discuss with uh, Dr. Brenner, who's joining us tonight for quite a while. um, And that is looking at the 2020-2021 that came out late 2020 ACG guidelines on the management of IBS. And uh, Dr. Brenner was one of the um, committee members who authored these recommendations. And so we'll delve into that in just a second. But first, a little bit of introduction. Uh, Dr. Darren Brenner is Associate Professor of Medicine and Surgery. He's also the Irene D. Pritzker Foundation Research Scholar. I hope I didn't mess that up too badly. (laughs) Perfect. He is the Director of Neurogastro and motility at Northwestern University. He's a busy guy. So hi, Darren, how are you? Hi, Joanna. Fine. Thank you yourself. And I want to thank you for the opportunity and uh, to everybody who participates in this podcast as well. Well, you know, like, like I said, I've been wanting to talk with you about this for a while. Um, I was, was actually hoping to compare it to other society guidelines, but, um, Alas, they're slow to come out. So I, I am excited to talk to you about this. And um, just maybe talk to us first about um, how this process happens. So every so often, committee members meet, uh, members of these societies, and you look at the guidelines and if they need to be revised or, or what needs to be what needs to be changed? Can you kind of explain that process, how often it occurs and and how the recommendations are made? Sure. It's actually quite variable. And I think it really depends on new information and new data that comes forth with clinical trials and clinical studies. For a lot of these different disorders, disorders of gut-brain interaction, we haven't seen a lot of traction over time, so there really hasn't been a need to change the guidelines. But you know, I like to talk about irritable bowel syndrome experiencing kind of a diaspora over the last 10 years with really a better understanding of the pathophysiology, uh, the different things that cause this disorder, having a better understanding of some of the, what we like to call IBS mimickers or masqueraders and whether or not they should be ruled out ruled in and how we should do that. But more importantly, newer treatments that really impact the global symptom profile that is irritable bowel syndrome. And until now, the American College of Gastroenterology or ACG did not publish a guideline on the management of irritable bowel syndrome. There have been some position statements, there have been some monographs, but there are subtle differences between these types of manuscripts and a guideline. So in position statements and monographs, usually you make a decision or determination based on meta-analyses, it's based on expert opinion. And the most recent one the ACG published or presented was in 2018. 
And there were some debates and quite honestly, some contention in some of the recommendations that were made. And we felt that we really had to look at the data in a more rigorous manner. And what the guideline does is it looks at it specifically using the data that's out there. And it uses what we call a grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation or grade methodology to score the evidence so that we have a better understanding of what the true evidence is behind a particular treatment. And then we can make some pseudo comparisons between the different therapies that are out there. And so what happened here is that we started out with a, a dearth of questions. I mean, with irritable bowel syndrome, we could probably come up with two questions that are pertinent and appropriate to answer. But unfortunately, that would be a thousand page paper that nobody would read. So we really tapered this down to what we thought were the 25 most important questions for practitioners in 2021, nine of these looking at diagnostic evaluations, and then the other 16 looking at therapeutics. So that's where this kind of came from in a nutshell. That's great. That, that's great. And the members of this committee were yourself, Dr. Lacey, um, Dr. Che, Dr. Moshery, Dr. Kiefer, who is our behavioral medicine expert, uh, Dr. Pimentel at Cedar sinai and then uh, Dr. Millie Long, uh, who's taking over as co-editor-in-chief for the American Journal of Gastroenterology, who is our grade methodologist from the University of North Carolina. So really okay. a, a collaboration of experts from a clinical and research standpoint. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of the who's who in neurogastro and motility for sure. All right. So let's go ahead and dig into some of the questions. So um, in the recommendations, you you recommended, and I'm going to say you universally. Sure. So you as the group, the committee uh, recommended serologic testing to rule out celiac disease in patients with IBS or diarrhea symptoms. So first of all, why is that recommendation important? And then secondly, to tag on that, what ways can celiac disease mimic IBS in, in the way that it presents um, in patient symptoms? Yeah, it's a great question. To go back to, to what you said, the you, you're right about that. Quite honestly, when we do these things, we use what, what we call a modified Delphi approach which means that we look at the questions we're asking, we retool those questions based on all of our thoughts and all of our recommendations. And in the end, the recommendations themselves and the questions are, are basically made unanimously. So we all agree on these terms. You're absolutely right. Back to the important question about celiac. So celiac is one of those IBS masqueraders or mimickers that I was discussing earlier. And celiac in its classic form presents with abdominal discomfort, potentially bloating, distension, and diarrhea. So symptoms that you would see in somebody with irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. And historically, we first started talking about testing for celiac because the initial studies showed that people with IBS were approximately four times more likely to have comorbid celiac or the prevalence of celiac compared to what it was in the general population. And Brennan Spiegel, one of our colleagues at Cedars, did a cost-effective analysis and said, this is cost-effective. Now, moving forward, the science has shifted a little bit. In the last couple of years, we've had some updated meta-analyses, and at least in North America or the United States, if you look at serologic testing or biopsy-proven celiac disease, there's actually no increase in the prevalence of celiac in IBS patients compared to healthy controls, with the prevalence ranging about 1%. What we did see, however, is that the odds ratio was more likely to have a diagnosis of celiac if you had irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. And that makes sense based on the symptoms we see with celiac. Right. 
The important thing here is that it's easy to test for celiac. We have a good way to treat it, which is a gluten-free diet. But right. importantly, if you miss celiac, there are multiple deleterious complications or consequences associated with it. Things like bone demineralization, vitamin and micronutrient deficiencies for women, infertility and potentially miscarriages. And then of course the big C, which is cancer. Celiac associated with an increased risk of esophageal cancer, small bowel cancers and lymphomas. So this is one of these things where we say it's a very easy thing to test for. And we certainly want to look for it so we don't miss it. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I like that you call it a, an IBS. What, what was the terminology? Yeah. IBS mimicker. Yeah. Masquerading sometimes. I think a lot of patients, you know, I hear from a lot of patients who get a late diagnosis of celiac because they weren't given that standard um, testing, just told they had either just functional diarrhea or IBS, but diarrhea um, and, and definitely have had some some lingering health issues because of that late diagnosis. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And that's key. Again, part of the reason that we started looking at this again is because IBS has long been considered kind of a, a singular entity. Right. And in reality, when I look at irritable bowel syndrome, I don't call it IBS. I call it IBS SSSSS. My colleagues have been hearing me talk about that for years. Multiple etiologic or pathogenic mechanisms that trickle down to a similar symptom profile. And there are lots of potential overlapping disorders, celiac yeah. being one, inflammatory yeah. bowel disease, bile acid malabsorption, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, alterations in gut microbe diet, and the list goes on. So right. that is kind of where we want to move this needle, getting away from seeing this as a singular entity, coming up with the underlying pathogenic mechanisms, developing diagnostic strategies for these mechanisms, and then treating accordingly. So celiac, again, is just one of these simple things that we can test for, yeah. rule out, with some simple blood tests. Yeah. Good. Okay. So moving on. Um, so the, the next recommendation that you all make is, is a little bit different, um, compared to some other society guidelines previously. And in it, you say, we suggest that either fecal calprotectin or fecal lactoferrin and C-reactive protein be checked in patients without alarm features and with suspected IBS and diarrhea symptoms to rule out inflammatory bowel disease. So we used to hear a lot about this being only recommended for patients who had alarm features, such as blood in the stool, a family history of colon cancer or of inflammatory bowel disease. Maybe they have unexplained significant weight loss, et cetera. So I guess my question for you is what was the rationale for screening patients that did not have alarm features for IBD? It's a great question. The simple answer is to avoid doing colonoscopies in individuals who don't need them. So you're mm. absolutely right. The alarm signs are symptoms, unexplained, unintentional weight loss, bleeding, anemia, acute changes in symptoms. Those are things that are going to drive us towards a diagnosis outside of irritable bowel syndrome. It kind of makes IBS a diagnosis of exclusion. And with those symptoms, we wholeheartedly expect our colleagues to either refer or if their gastroenterologist perform colonoscopies. What we're doing with these studies is we're saying, if you meet criteria for irritable bowel syndrome and there are no alarm features, 
Can we use these inflammatory markers, CRP, fecal calprotectin, fecal lactoferrin, to basically rule out inflammatory bowel disease in a patient where we think they have irritable bowel syndrome? And the answer is pretty much yes. And this comes from a really nice systematic review meta-analysis that was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology a few years back by uh, Stacey Meniz, who's one of Bill Chase's colleagues. They did this study together. And they did a review of four biomarkers, two blood biomarkers, CRP and ESR, and then the stool biomarkers, fecal calprotectin and fecal lactoferrin. And they asked, can we use these biomarkers to differentiate healthy control individuals from people who meet criteria for irritable bowel syndrome without alarm signs or symptoms from people that have biopsy proven inflammatory bowel disease? Mm -hmm. And what they were able to show is that we pretty much could. So we used a couple of different thresholds. If you look at the serum CRP and you obtain a serum CRP and it's less than 0.5, then in an individual who meets criteria for IBS without any alarm signs or symptoms, the chances you're missing inflammatory bowel disease is 1% or less. If we look at fecal calprotectin and it's less than 40, then in the same situation, the risk of missing inflammatory bowel disease is also less than 1%. And if we put the two together, although there's no data to prove this, the likelihood of missing IBD is probably significantly lower. Right. Since then, there's more robust data showing that you can use fecal lactoferrin, but overall, the fecal calprotectin is basically the most superior test. It has the highest negative predictive value of all of these. So if we're going to make a recommendation, if you had to do one test, we'd recommend the fecal calprotectin. But if people don't have access to this study or it's not covered by insurance, the serum CRP is a good uh, study to consider as well. So again, this is my very fancy way of saying when my 25-year-old comes in with symptoms for 10 years, there are no alarm signs or symptoms. I want to avoid doing a colonoscopy. This pretty much allows me to do so. That's great. Okay. All right. So looking in that regard of trying to avoid unwarranted, unnecessary diagnostic testing like a colonoscopy. Um, we know that in practice, colonoscopy is one of the most highly requested tests to have done patients, despite, you know, the, the kind of un, un, um, icky, uh, prep for it. They request it because they are certain that it's going to find that missing link of their symptoms and why they're having their abdominal pain or their bowel disturbance or their bloating or whatever. Um, and, and a lot of patients are certain that it's something catastrophic. It's, you know, it's a tumor, it's cancer, it's, it's whatever. Um, so in that regard, your committee recommended against routine colonoscopy in patients with IBS symptoms who were younger than 45 years old without key warning signs. And for patients who are convinced that this is critical for their doctor to make an appropriate diagnosis and are requesting one and almost demanding one outside of these guidelines, how would you recommend providers provide education around the purpose of the colonoscopy, the rationale for not doing one um, and, and get that understanding and that kind of compliance with the patient. Sure. Well, the first thing I, I do is I talk about the likelihood of having irritable bowel syndrome. And I call it Brenner's eight simple questions to make a pretty definitive diagnosis of irritable bowel. And this is for, you know, the practitioners listening to this webcast, but also yeah. to the patients who are on as well. The eight questions are binary. They're simple yes or no questions. It takes about three minutes to ask them. And the first three just include the wrong criteria. 
Is there abdominal pain or discomfort? Does it get better or worse when you have a bowel movement? Is the pain or discomfort associated with a change in stool frequency or and or stool form? And if the patient answers yes, they meet the ruling questions. Then there are the five alarm signs or symptoms, which we briefly just discussed. Right. If you're bleeding or anemia, are you over the age of 50? Now, the guideline says 45 because we lowered the colorectal cancer screening recommendations, and that's in line with that recommendation. But the alarm symptom we've looked at historically was 50. Is there an acute or unexplained weight loss? Is this an acute change in symptoms? Or is there a family history of colon cancer, IBD, or celiac? If you answer yes to the first three and no to the final five, which are the rule out symptoms, then the accuracy of a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome approaches almost 98, 99%. That's where I start with my patients. And then I talk about if you're on the irritable bowel with diarrhea side, that we look for CELAC and we do the fecal calprotexins or ESRs, sorry, not ESRs, CRPs, and that reduces the likelihood of having something else even further. So we're getting close to that 99 plus percent threshold. We recommend it in patients with constipation, do no diagnostic testing, go straight to treatment. And here's the argument I make to my colleagues. If somebody walks into your office and they say, I've had constipation since my early teen years, and they're now in their mid thirties and their symptoms really haven't changed and they have no alarm signs or symptoms. What are you looking for with a colonoscopy? Yeah. Right? Right. The answer is right. a tumor. But right. a tumor, if it grow over 30 years, you're going to have an alarm sign or symptom, or quite honestly, with your patient, you're not having that conversation because that cat was out of the bag a long time ago. So there's right. not a lot of utility there. Yeah. What are you doing when you're looking with a colonoscopy for irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea? You're ruling out inflammatory bowel disease, and you're maybe ruling out microscopic colitis, except that we know that microscopic colitis is a disease with very low prevalence under the age of 45. So the chances you're going to find anything are next to zero. Then I talk about the data. There are multiple studies. The most recent one was just presented at UEGW in Europe this week that have shown that the utility of a colonoscopy or other diagnostic testing is next to zero. You're not going to find anything. There's no increased risk of any of these disorders in people with irritable bowel compared to the average population. Right. We talk about the positive diagnostic strategy, minimizing these diagnostic tests because we want to reduce costs, but also because again, multiple trials have shown that if you do minimal testing, you talk to your patient about the symptom and symptom burden, you meet those aforementioned criteria, that the outcomes in terms of symptom improvement and quality of life outcomes are no different than if you run a person through multiple blood tests, CAT scans, x-rays, and scopes. Outcomes are identical in terms of symptom improvement and quality of life outcomes. So we Absolutely. really have to run the gamut of studies that people have done historically. And I have that full conversation with my colleagues and with my patients. So I think the one thing that stood out to me, just a sidebar um, of in reading this article was the fact that you all multiple times stated um, that there was your recommendation for not doing these diagnostic testings was to be able to a get to treatment faster, which then improves quality of life and reduces the symptom severity, which all patients should want. Um, but B reduces healthcare costs for both the patient and for 
just the healthcare system in general, which I thought was really, really interesting and kind of as a little bit of a paradigm shift in terms of what used to be like scope everybody, just scope them all. And now it's more like, wait a second, we don't need to be spending this amount of money. The patients don't need to be need to be spending it or going through the process if they meet Rome criteria and they have a irritable bowel syndrome. That's absolutely right. We spend billions. And yes, the term is billions of dollars on a disorder that we can make, like I said, with about 98% accuracy answering eight binary questions. And that's why we want to go to this positive strategy. The problem we still have in 2021, and we're all still working on it, is the fallacies in the diagnosis of IBS. Now, what do I mean by that? When I think about IBS, I think that there is a specific diagnosis for a specific disorder. But many practitioners out there look at IBS completely differently. Some look at IBS as a diagnosis of exclusion. Right. EGDs, colonoscopies, CAT scans, wireless motility capsules. I could go on and on. I would, you know, run out of breath going through the number of tests. And then when all these are negative, say, well, everything's negative. So let's call it IBS. So I guess you have IBS. Yeah, exactly. Or the other side of the spectrum. A young person walks in, has three or four GI symptoms, and they use IBS as a coverall for every disorder of gut-brain interaction, but you can't treat every disorder of gut-brain interaction with an IBS treatment. So I always say, it's like trying to treat elevated blood pressure hypertension with an antihyperlipidemic. It doesn't work. So the key is, and I say this all the time, you got to make the right diagnosis to appropriately treat, because if you're treating the wrong disorder, you're going to get nowhere. And inappropriate treatment leads to persistence of symptoms, which leads to further or my worst pet peeve, recurrence of the same diagnostic test being done over and over. (laughs) Yes, yes. And then from the patient standpoint, um, you know, hypervigilance of the symptom and which is driving anxiety and depression, which is driving their symptom severity. And it's just this cycle that we're all sucked into. Yeah. Okay. You're absolutely right. So, um, so we just kind of talked about that, you know, accepting the patient, accepting the IBS, uh, diagnosis. And I mean, you've been a part of some of our webinars and our trainings around the use of effective communication for providers to explain the conditions, explain, you know, why you feel this is the right diagnosis and using that clear language, um, being not, not saying, I think you might have, but saying this is your diagnosis um, in order to be able to move on to treatment. Um, So I think all of that is great in the recommendation guidelines as well. Um, So moving on to treatments, your committee recommended a limited trial of the low FODMAP diet um, for for all patients to look for symptom improvement, um, which we've talked many times on Tuesday night IBS about the use of the low FODMAP diet and, and how it can benefit. Um, you also talked about um, recommending the use of soluble fiber to be tried for all patients. And then you recommended the use of peppermint for global relief. Um, so we've talked a little bit about peppermint before, and we've had some patients report that they have sent, found some relief using peppermint capsules. Um, but but the data has been a little bit varied and, and not so strong. So what was the data that you looked at that made you decide to make the recommendation for the use of peppermint? 
Yeah, we looked at some of the clinical trials that were out there. One of the big ones was the um, IBS study that was published by uh, Brooks Cash in Digestive okay. Diseases and Sciences a few years ago. And then we looked at some of the systematic reviews and meta-analyses. I mean, peppermint oil in its simplest form, it's an antispasmodic. Right. But it also has anti-inflammatory, anti-gas, and anti-serotonergic properties. And we know that all of those are involved in the milieu of etiologic mechanisms that can induce IBS symptoms. And if you go back historically into the European literature, earlier meta-analysis showed that there was a number needed to treat of about three to four to mm. improve IBS symptoms. So yeah. you've got a therapeutic that's pretty easy to use. It's safe. It's right. over the counter. It has a minimal side effect profile and it has a rapid onset of effect. And at the time, we didn't have some of the more rigorous studies that have been published in the last couple of years. I can think of two trials off the top of my head that have been published that maybe show it isn't as effective as it once was thought to be. But again, there are differences in these studies. My personal bias is this. We have patients that want to go the more natural route. I see lots of patients mm -hmm. with irritable bowel syndrome that see holistic physicians and naturopaths before they come to see allopathic Western medicine practitioners. And right. they're looking for something from that standpoint. You know, case in point, fiber, the low FODMAP diet, and they want to stay away from medicines. And that's part of the thought process when you're treating these patients. To our discussion earlier, there are really no head-to-head -head trials showing that one therapy is better than the other, but there are numerous studies that have shown that if you engage the patient in the decision-making process for treatment, and you take their personal concerns, wishes, and wants into account, that the yeah. outcomes are always better. Now, whether that is a, you can call it a placebo effect, whether you can call that impacting the brain portion of gut-brain interaction, I don't care. Because at the end of the day, if the patient's getting better by being involved in the process, that's what we care about. So you have a very yes. simple, easy, safe therapeutic with the potential to improve these symptoms. And I personally have had lots of patients who've responded to peppermint oil. The yeah. other nice thing about it too, if I can make one more point, it Please. is a very good medication for on-demand therapy. Brooks' mm -hmm. study showed that you could reduce the intensity of IBS symptoms by about 40% within 24 hours. So while the Rome criteria say that on average, you have to have symptoms at least one day a week, realistically, I see patients who have good months or bad months, good weeks or right. bad weeks. We know the symptoms can be worse for women perimenstrually. And in these situations, having an on-demand therapeutic as opposed to a medication they have to use on a day-in, day-out basis is very appealing to them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So while we're talking about um, peppermint being an antispasmodic, your recommendations were against the use of pharmacological antispasmodics. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So again, we took a lot of time talking about our recommendation. Mm -hmm. And it was actually a, I don't remember if it was a recommendation or a suggestion, quite honestly, maybe <laughs> a suggestion, um, but against using antispasmodics available in the United States for global IBS symptoms. And in 2021, it's all about global IBS symptoms from the FDA yeah. standpoint, from our patient standpoints. When we do patient right. report and outcome surveys, they want you to treat what I call abdominal or bowel, but drilling down butt and gut symptoms at the same time. And we know that the antispasmodics, the classic ones, dicyclamine, hyoscine, hyoscyamine, are very good at reducing cramping but yes. really do not improve pain, bloating, and bowel symptoms. And this is what actually led to the study that Brian Lacey and I recently published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, which was a review of the antispasmodics for treating irritable bowel syndrome 
and functional dyspepsia in the United States. Realistically, there are five clinical trials, two for dicyclamine, two for hyoscine, one for hyoscyamine. These go back decades. These were small studies, did not use specific definitions for irritable bowel syndrome, were right. very small in terms of their time frames, and used a dearth of different clinical outcomes. So the jury's still out. And that's why we really said the medications in the United States, we don't recommend. There is more robust data for other antispasmodics internationally, things like uh, otolinium or penivarium. So again, very specific in our wording for that recommendation for those reasons. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Okay. So this one, this one was a little bit interesting to me because in so many um, other guidelines, it's been particularly for chronic constipation, but to a certain extent for IBS with constipation as well, there's been lots of talk about the efficacy of PEG. And, and in these recommendations, you actually recommend against the use of PEG for IBSC. So um, I guess my question is, you know, what data were you looking at to support that recommendation in the article? It talks a little bit about the ineffectiveness of PEG to treat pain. Um, and it's really just used to, to treat the constipation, which is understandable, but for a lot of patients, the constipation or that backup of the stool is, is maybe what's causing a lot of the pain. And so I was just maybe elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah. You know, so part of that came from the fact that we now have multiple different therapies that have been shown to be effective for treating global IBSC symptoms, as well as the subsyndromic symptoms, abdominal symptoms like pain, discomfort, bloating, distension, bowel symptoms, frequency, texture, straining, incomplete evacuation. And because of that, we stopped saying, well, let's give it a marginal recommendation or a weak recommendation or a strong recommendation. And let's start to, like we want to do a diagnosing irritable bowel syndrome, let's draw a line in the sand. Let's really hold these therapeutics accountable and say, here's what we think works. Here's what we think doesn't for, again, global IBS symptoms. And if you look at the literature, the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology guidelines that were published just before ours started mm -hmm. to recommend against using these as well, the over-the-counters. But a lot of people will say, well, I put my patients on it all the time for constipation. And they do great. Right. And right. I will never, ever discount that. In fact, a systematic review that Satish Rao and I just published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology of over-the-counter therapeutics for constipation, Miralax was and still remains the highest recommended therapeutic. But as you mentioned, Joanna, it is very, very good for treating bowel symptoms. All right. the clinical trials in the IBS setting, and there aren't many in their small studies, have shown over and over again the same thing it shows in the chronic constipation trials. It improves stool frequency, the stools are softer, you strain less, you feel like you get more out. Right. And then the question becomes, well, what really is the difference then between chronic constipation and irritable bowel syndrome with constipation? And the Rome criteria would say for irritable the bowel, the synoquinone is the pain. But Rome also concedes in Rome 4 in small print that people with constipation can experience pain as well. It's not part of the criteria, but it's there and it's written. And thus, yeah. a lot of us have started to think about chronic constipation and irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, not as two singular entities, but as two disorders along a spectrum with pain as the mediator. And yes. the studies certainly show that PEG will not get the pain piece, whereas things like the secreta guys or you know, the prokinetic agent to gasserod might. And so when we're looking at global symptom improvement, all the data from the studies on IBS show that you do not improve the pain. So we said, let's recommend the ones that can and start getting away from these other medications. Now, for the audience, 
if you have a patient that has predominantly constipation symptoms and they define pain, but the pain is something that comes secondary to not having a bowel movement for three, four, five, six days, or they tell you if I had a bowel movement every day, I'd never have pain. That's <laughs> more pain on the constipation side of things. And I would never tell you not to use PEG as a first line agent. The one yeah. other piece here too is PEG's Achilles heel. PEG has been shown in clinical trials and anecdotally, we all know this, to worsen abdominal bloating and distension in particular individuals. So for those patients who have that as a baseline symptom, it may make it worse. Yet another reason why we made the recommendation that we did. Right. Good. Great. All right. So pharmacological treatments that you included in your article was the use of rifaximin for IBSD. Um, Tegacerod for IBSC, obviously indicated only in women younger than 65 who meet very um, um, clear cardiovascular criteria and do not respond first to a secretagogue. And then the use of chloride channel agents in IBSC, amongst other things. Um, one new recommendation that you made was the use of TCAs to treat global symptoms of IBS. Um, as well as abdominal pain. And I was curious, I'm sure that Dr. Kiefer um, helped in, in providing the data around the efficacy of TCAs um, in abdominal pain. Um, but, but what was the key, maybe key piece that kind of convinced everyone to go ahead and include the use of a neuromodulator in this recommendations? Yeah, you know, a couple of things. Number one, historically, they've always been used. They are excellent medications for disorders of gut-brain interaction. And thank you very much by defining them as neuromodulators as opposed to antidepressants. That's yes, the stigma we're trying to get away from with our patients. Yes. You know, notice in the guideline, we didn't comment on SSRIs because the data is just not as robust and we didn't think right. it was appropriate to make comments on that. But there have been multiple clinical trials and systematic reviews that have shown that the tricyclic antidepressant, i.e. neuromodulators, I'll say that over and over again, are very effective in treating global IBS symptoms. Now, most of us will use these for IBSD because of the anticholinergic properties of the right. medications. But I think we all also know that at lower doses, it will improve the abdominal pain component. So we just basically look to see if there's any new data, but the earlier monographs and position statements have always recommended these therapeutics. The problem with them historically has been the stigma associated mm -hmm. with using them. You come and right. you talk to a patient and you say, I'm going to put you on this medication. And then they go home and they open Dr. Google because everybody does because they want to be well-educated. And it says that the amitriptyline or nortriptyline or mipramine or dizipramine is an antidepressant. And you either get one of two things, the nasty call from the patient saying, <laughs> you think I'm crazy. That's why you put me on this. Yes. Or you get the nasty health grade that says exactly the same thing. <laughs> so the key is to preface this, to talk about what these medications are, how they were initially developed, how we yeah. move the needle and how we use these medications, and then talk a little bit about disorders of gut-brain interaction and how the central nervous system and the enteric nervous system interact and why these medications can act as a stopgap in this process. And in that right. situation, you get some pretty good buy-in. But these medications are when titrated appropriately safe, have been shown to be extremely effective and can be used in the long term. So we just included that as an extrapolation of old data with that strong recommendation. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I mean, obviously, Rome Foundation in, in 2018 published our working team report on the use of neuromodulators in GI conditions. And um, 
you know, Dr. Drossman is a strong believer in them as well. So I think that's wonderful that um, ACG is including them. Um, so personally, as we're talking about neuromodulators and behavioral health, I thought it was really great that you included treatments such as CBT, gut-directed hypnotherapy, cognitive reframing, et cetera, um, as also key treatments for some patients with these, with IBS. Um, but like we've just said, there's still a bit of stigma attached to behavioral health treatments, behavioral treatments in general, uh, neuromodulators. Um, so I think as you, as you said, I just echo education is really important for the patient to understand why you're making the recommendation of these treatment modalities, that it's not because of a psychiatric condition that you think they have. Um, it is simply because of that brain gut axis and because chronic illness can in fact cause a symptom related anxiety and depression. I mean, any chronic illness, IBS or any, anything else. Um, and, and I think that, you know, with proper reframing and education by the doctor that does not take any longer than responding to your health grade, um, online, <laughs> you can avoid all of that. Um, I, I had a patient who told me that they, you know, their doctor, told them that this certain drug was going to treat their abdominal pain. And when they went to the pharmacy to fill it, the pharmacist said, do you have any questions? Or the text said, do you have any questions for the pharmacist about your new antidepressant? Yep. <laughs> that was the first time that she had heard that's what this yep. drug would, had been previously used to treat. And so of course she was very upset and she uh, fired off an email in my chart and <laughs> it was a, uh, quite an ordeal. So I think, you know, as you said, you save yourself a lot of headache if you just take the extra time to explain the rationale. I tell people the two minutes up front saves you the 20 minutes on the back end. And, you know, to your point, these behavioral medicines, we had to look at that. Okay. Yes. And you're right. It works not only in irritable bowel syndrome, but numerous disorders of gut brain interaction data and in inflammatory bowel disease, which just again, goes to show that the brain and the gut are connected to each other. Lori exactly. always likes to tell her patients who don't think that there is a CNS component. Well, if I cut open your skull and took out your brain, how would the rest of your body work? I mean, it's a very <laughs> simple process. Yeah. The thing that I like to stress to my patients, and there isn't the data yet, but I've seen it anecdotally in our clinical practice. And I got my beginnings in research doing studies on cognitive behavioral therapy, a large NIH study with Lori, um, is that historically we've saved this for people with really severe symptoms. And in yeah. clinical trials, the fallacy has been in the vast majority, if not all of them to this point, behavioral therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, gut-directed hypnotherapy is used as an adjunct. Right. I don't use that in my clinical practice. At Northwestern, we have four behavioral psychologists. If I think that there is a stress trigger or a patient's going to benefit from these types of interventions, I go with that and it works very yeah. well. The numbers needed to treat for behavioral interventions, again, using studies that are using it as an adjunct, so there are other therapies on board, are very low and actually lower than the pharmaceuticals. Most of yes. the numbers needed to treat for the therapeutics that are out there are some in the, somewhere in the 8 to 12 range. For behavioral interventions, the number needed to treat is about 3 or 4. And in our NIH-sponsored study, the IBSOS study, which was uh, performed at Northwestern in SUNY Buffalo, we were able to show that you could get the same symptom-based and quality of life-based impact from four one-hour sessions with a good therapist compared to 10 sessions. So four one-hour sessions got about 70% of individuals who were treated, and this was IBSD, 
M or C, global improvement to a moderate or significant improvement level. So an excellent, excellent wow. therapy if you have access to it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that it should definitely, I mean, personally, I've benefited from CBT myself. Um, and I think that for a lot of patients, um, if, if they have access, and I think that's the big key is the access piece, right? Um, common, it, if I can make a point there, I apologize for cutting you off. There are systems online now where you can yes. receive the CBT um, through television or video medicine, which is obviously exploded during COVID. It right. is starting to be covered by insurance companies. There are ICD-9 codes forthcoming. So for the mm -hmm. practitioners that don't have this in their offices, Look for these sites online. I apologize. I didn't mean yeah. to cut you off, but I want to throw that in. No, I totally agree. I think there are some really interesting um, virtual platforms that are coming online. Like you mentioned, one that is prescription only um, for patients who meet criteria, which I'm very excited about. Um, and, and some others that are just available through the app store. I think Nerva is doing a really nice job with their app. And I know Dr. Nguyen is doing a study on that, looking at the, the efficacy in patients with IBS who use Nerva. Um, I, I've recommended it to a lot of patients who don't have access to a, a GI health psychologist in their area. And it's, and it's been very, very helpful. So I think COVID actually, you know, as, as challenging as it was, it certainly was the mother of invention yes. in some of these things, which has been really good for patients. So I yeah, agree. Um, other modalities are being tested. I know Brian Lacey has just looked at the use of virtual reality for dyspepsia. Brennan Spiegel is doing a lot of that. And yes. then we're actually running a, a clinical trial for irritable bowel as well. So, you know, think about that in the future. If we can show that you can get better by spending 15 minutes doing some fun activities on yeah. your Oculus headset, right? Anybody can do that at home. And the cost effectiveness of this while having to be validated, you know, makes intuitive sense. So things yes. are in the pipeline, exciting downstream effects are forthcoming. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for reviewing these key um, recommendations with us. I, I appreciate it. Do you have any final comments for providers and for patients? No, I think you've done a great job kind of highlighting what's out there. You know, I just hearken back to some of the things that we discussed. The best way to treat an IBS patient is to make a definitive diagnosis. Mm. Go on to the days of, I think it is, it may be, I've excluded everything else. So tell your patients they have irritable bowel syndrome. Explain to them what those questions, what the accuracy of those questions are. Minimize your diagnostic testing, and then take a look at the therapeutics that are out there. Get away from those 30, 40, 50-year-old treatments with over-the-counter therapies for laxatives or anti-diarrheals, the anti-spasmodics. We have newer, better therapies, both natural and holistic, as well as pharmaceutical that can go a long way to improving the symptoms your IBS patients experience and more importantly, their quality of life. Yeah, I agree. Very good. Well, as always, thanks so much for your time and um, we'll see you next Tuesday on Twitter for our live Twitter chat and take questions from other clinicians about these guidelines and how they can apply them in their own clinical practice. So until next time, Dr. Brenner, have a great day. We'll talk to everyone real soon. Bye-bye now. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Join us again next month for another episode of Tuesday Night IBS. And be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guest and encourage you to join in the conversation. 
In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.